0: Brought to you by Penguin.
1: So even though those weapons already exist and they are already being sold by companies and advertising their autonomous killing capabilities, politicians and the general public still think that killer robots are something that only exists in science fiction.
2: Hello and welcome to the Weekly Penguin Podcast, the place where we explore how our brilliant writers and artists get inspired through a series of special objects that they have chosen. I'm Nihal Arthanaike and I'm speaking remotely, of course, from my living room, where I have a microphone precariously balanced on the armrest of my sofa. My guest today has advised number 10 and the United Nations about the risks of AI. He is a professor of computer science at the University of California, Berkeley. His best-selling book, Artificial Intelligence, A Modern Approach, is taught in over 1300 universities around the world. And in his latest work, Human Compatible, he looks at how AI works, how it has a huge capacity to improve our lives and what we must do to stop the machines from taking over. Professor Stuart Russell, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be
2: here. It's great to have you here on The Penguin Podcast. Now, you have chosen some uh, objects that have inspired your work, which includes a programmable calculator from 1975 and a piece of classical music, and we'll find out more about those in the moment. But first, I guess I could ask you the question, why didn't you choose the CDC 6600 as one of your objects?
1: (laughs) Good question, yeah. So uh, the CDC 6600 was the computer at Imperial College um, I think it was the biggest uh, university computer in Britain at the time, and was probably about a million times less powerful than a supercomputer today. But at that time, it was considered enormous. And I went to Imperial College every week on the bus with a enormous box of punch cards, which was a chess program that I had written. So that was the first real AI program that I wrote. But the um, the Sinclair Cambridge programmable calculator was where I learned the whole idea of a program, and and as soon as I understood what a program was, even though I'd never heard the phrase AI, I figured I could try to make this programmable device do something intelligent.
2: Let's now go to your first chosen object, and that is this vital piece of equipment: a Sinclair Cambridge programmable calculator. Tell us why this plays such a special role in your life and you had to have it as one of your objects today.
1: (laughs) So this was my introduction to computer science. This was the first thing I ever got my hands on that could be programmed, that you could get this thing to do anything, or at least anything that could be expressed in 36 keystrokes. I found this completely fascinating. Because, you know, except for the the limit on size of 36, even within that limit, there's a a sort of vast, you know, sort of astronomical numbers of possible programs that you could write. Um, And you're just limited by your imagination. You know, later on, when I understood this, this idea of the universal machine, which came originally from Alan Turing's paper in 1936, right, the idea that one machine can effectively do anything that any other machine can do any other computing machine. So the laptop that I have in front of me, I can by just by typing, right. I can produce software, which can translate from Chinese into Swedish. I can type some more and then it will, you know, put pictures of the Titanic on the screen and have, have the waves slosh around and, uh, and make everything wet. I can, you know, sim- simulate. All the details of, of a space mission to Mars. I can model the folding of proteins inside uh, the cell, you know, just by typing. It's an amazing thing that uh, computer science has given us, um, and that was the device that uh, that made me understand that.
2: What effect, Professor Russell, has Hollywood had on governmental policy around the world, and popular opinion about artificial intelligence?
1: Almost invariably, the Hollywood plots with AI involve machines that somehow become conscious. They sort of wake up and develop their own free will, and they start doing things that are not in their programming. And you wonder, how well, how exactly does that happen? Because the only thing that makes a computer tick is its program, so it can only do what its program commands it to do. Suspending your disbelief, you, these machines always wake up. They're always uh, somehow evil. They always hate humans, and uh, and bad things happen as a result. So partly it's because Hollywood wants to have a plot, and you know it's hard to have a plot when your computer is just processing the weekly payroll uh, in the way it's supposed to do. <laughs> um, and no one's uh, getting that script commissioned, <laughs> are they? Let's be. <laughs> I don't think so. No. <laughs> you know, and and this goes through the you know, the Terminator series um, where Skynet wakes up and, uh, and, and ends up uh, vanquishing the human race militarily. This, I think, actually is an enormous kind of misdirection because it leads people to think that the main risk from computers is if they become conscious. Uh, and, of course, they won't become conscious. And even if they did, we wouldn't know. And they certainly wouldn't behave in ways that their program doesn't allow. And the AI community is busy telling everyone, you know, stop worrying about machines becoming conscious and and doing things of their own free will. So the whole issue of risk from AI becomes something that's relegated to science fiction. And the same issue even applies to autonomous weapons. Which, I mean, the autonomous weapons use AI to carry out their lethal mission. Um, These are weapons that have enough AI on board that they can go out and find human targets and kill them without being directed uh, by human pilots in the way that drones are. So even though those weapons already exist and they are already being sold by companies and advertising their autonomous killing capabilities politicians and the general public still think that killer robots are something that only exists in science fiction. And we only have to worry about them if they become conscious, like the Terminator robots. And otherwise, everything's fine. So we've got this situation where people think that something that is real and already exists actually only exists in science fiction. So that's a pretty big sort of policy disconnect. uh, And I've heard Senior politicians in positions of power say that we don't need to worry about killer robots because that's just Skynet. uh, And Skynet is science fiction.
2: There is a section, of course, of your book where you talk about lethal autonomous weaponry and go into the actual threat it poses. Um, Let's have a listen to that section of the audiobook now.
0: It would be possible, in fairly short order, to field an anti personnel weapon like the Slaughterbot. This is a tiny quadcopter less than three inches across, that carries an explosive-driven projectile and made its appearance in the short film of the same name. Such a weapon could be tasked with attacking anyone meeting certain visual criteria, age, gender, uniform, skin color, and so on, or even specific individuals based on face recognition. I'm told that the Swiss Defense Department has already built and tested a real slaughterbot and found that, as expected, the technology is both feasible and lethal. Since 2014, diplomatic discussions have been underway in Geneva that may lead to a treaty banning ores. At the same time, some of the major participants in these discussions – the United States, China, Russia, and to some extent Israel and the UK – are engaged in a dangerous competition to develop autonomous weapons. In the United States, for example, the CODE, Collaborative Operations in Denied Environments Program, aims to move towards autonomy by enabling drones to function with, at best, intermittent radio contact. The drones will hunt in packs, like wolves, according to the program manager.
2: That was Human Compatible, written by my guest, Professor Stuart Russell, and read there by Raphael Corkill. It is available to buy and download now. There's a link in the program notes of this episode. What is your attitude towards governments using AI to make intelligent weaponry? Uh,
1: well, my view is not particularly favorable, but possibly not for the reason you might think. So I think there's an argument to be made that there's something fundamentally wrong about delegating decisions to kill people to algorithms. And in fact, that's a view, we had a very interesting debate uh, at the World Economic Forum in Davos. And I was on the stage and um, Angela Kane, who used to be in charge of disarmament at the United Nations. And then the third person was uh, Roger Carr, chairman of BAE Systems, which is one of the largest defense manufacturers in the world. So Angela and I had a little confab beforehand and we were thinking, okay, this is going to be a knockdown, drag out debate between us who, you know, both Angela and I are opposed to autonomous weapons. Uh, and we assumed that Roger Carr would be in favor. But at the beginning of the debate, he, he said, I'd like to make a statement. Autonomous weapons are fundamentally wrong uh, and my my company will never make them. So that was the end of the debate. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't actually get to have a good argument at all. It's a bit. I think the the audience was a bit disappointed. Someone so didn't do their
2: briefing notes on this. I'm thinking.
1: <laughs> I don't know involved. whether he had an epiphany on the way to the meeting. Oh right? right, okay. So I think that's an argument, but I actually doubt that that's an argument that's going to hold much force with uh, with governments. You know, and and governments have a responsibility to protect their people and to. Uh, to anticipate and and prevent threats to national security. Uh, And so a moral argument like that, although I think it's significant and probably played some role in, in banning chemical weapons um, because of the sort of moral outrage caused by the deaths of people from chemical weapons in world war one. I didn't think that the moral argument would carry much weight, but the, The reason not to develop autonomous weapons is that because they're autonomous, because you don't have a human being supervising every movement and every kill decision of the robot uh, as you do with drones, that means that the number of weapons that you can launch and have kill people is effectively unlimited. In fact, you know, five guys in a truck can launch a million weapons uh, and wipe out you know, an entire city. The reason not to develop autonomous weapons is that they are weapons of mass destruction. They are scalable, unlike nuclear weapons, where, you know, you have to sort of do an enormous explosion or nothing at all. You can have 10 or 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 or a million autonomous weapons. Uh, And you can also select who you're going to kill. So you could kill all, all Jewish males between the age of 12 and 70. Uh, For example, if uh, that might be a mission uh, used in an attack on Israel. And they don't leave behind a huge radioactive smoking crater and they don't dump millions of tons of of radioactive dust into the atmosphere. So uh, in almost every way, they are more effective than nuclear weapons. And they're cheap and they're very easy to proliferate. So why we would want to create such a class of weapons of mass destruction, which would be the ideal weapon for non-state actors uh, and for rogue nations, uh, I just think it would be a terrible idea from the point of view of national security. A historical point, you know, and this was essentially the same argument that uh, was used to convince the United States to abandon their biological weapons program, which was a huge research and development program in the 1960s. And then they realized that, oh, if they succeeded in this research and development program, they would create uh, a cheap commoditizable weapon of mass destruction, which would probably end up being used against the United States. And so they said, you know what, this is a really stupid idea. Let's not do it. And I think that, uh, that applies to autonomous weapons, at least the kind that can be manufactured in very large numbers and used against uh, human beings.
2: Let us, Professor, go back 10 years to a time where you were on the Paris Metro and you were listening to some music. And can you go to your next object?
1: So to give a little bit of background, I was on sabbatical in Paris and I had joined a choir. I had no musical training and all the other people in the choir were, you know, music professors and voice teachers and so on. So I was constantly behind Every metro journey I took in Paris, I would get out my headphones and my music and try to learn. Uh, And the piece we were doing was Agnus Dei by Samuel Barber, which is a transcendentally beautiful piece of music. And as I was listening to it, I was thinking, in, in some ways, that this is an example of what life is for the experience of listening to this music. And then I was thinking, okay, well, then this is what we want. AI to do. We want AI systems that enable human beings to have experiences that are valuable uh, in whatever way makes sense to that person. And then, this is the, the important part, was I realized that there was no way for an AI system to know in advance what would be of value to each individual human being. And that's a very different way of thinking about what AI should be doing. And then it occurred to me that Coming back to this question of uh, losing control, the, the reason we would lose control was because we put objectives into the machines that turn out to be the wrong ones. So this is the legend of King Midas, if you like, where King Midas says, I want everything I touch to turn to gold and the gods give him that wish. In other words, he's put that objective into the machine, so to speak, and the machine is carrying it out. And now his food and his drink turn to gold and his family turns to gold and he dies in misery and uh, wishing that he hadn't specified that objective. Uh, and this, this same legend uh, occurs in different forms and in, in pretty much every culture. We know that we are absolutely terrible at specifying objectives. And, uh, and that's how we would lose control to AI by giving them objectives and then being unable to prevent the machines from actually carrying out these objectives. So if we do AI this different way, where we don't give them objectives, where the machine has to function knowing that it doesn't know what our true objectives are, then maybe that could actually solve that problem, Uh, that maybe we would never lose control because we are always the ones with the objectives uh, and not the machines. Let's go on to your
2: next object, which is a book. Now, why have you chosen this book?
1: So the the Thinking Computer uh, was the first AI book that I ever read. So it was the one that introduced me to all the ideas of AI that existed in the late 1960s. I had already been trying to get my programmable calculator to be intelligent. Unfortunately, the, the biggest program you could write was only 36 keystrokes long. So you could take square roots, uh, which I thought was very cool. But couldn't do much AI. Anyway, the book uh, opened my eyes to the fact that there was already a whole discipline that had grown up that planted a seed in my mind that one day I might become an AI researcher. Almost all of the techniques in the thinking computer are now obsolete. There's very little in there that has survived the test of time. And I think that says something about how difficult AI is, that the first 20 ideas people had about it turned out to be wrong.
2: Professor, what are the fundamental questions that people in your field want answered?
1: So the question since the beginning has been, how do we act successfully in the real world? By the time that we had computers during the Second World War, we actually had a pretty well-defined notion of what we mean by successful behavior in the real world, behavior that uh, achieves the objectives that the entity has. And in AI, the big question then was, well, how on earth do you actually produce that behavior? Um, And when we looked at uh, even relatively simple problems, like playing chess, we found that actually it's incredibly difficult. So for most of the history of the field, it's been how on earth do we get them to stop being completely stupid um, and start choosing (laughs) actions that actually are effective? I feel my (laughs)
2: role as a parent is much the same as that.
1: (laughs) But, you know, children learn pretty quickly. Um, Yeah, they do. You know, we've actually now, as it turns out, been able to build learning machines that in some ways outdo what children can do in learning. Um, So for example, DeepMind made their DQN system, which, uh, which is sort of a, you know, wakes up as a newborn baby, has never experienced anything of any kind. Um, And it sees the screen of a video game. I mean, literally the screen of the video game, it doesn't, doesn't have access to the internals of the game. It just sees the screen and the score and in a few hours it learns to be basically superhuman expert at all of the Atari video games. And if a newborn baby did that, you you'd be calling for the priest to have an exorcism. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, we've also been able to make robots that, you know, within a few hours of being born are able to learn to stand up and to learn to walk and to learn to run. Uh, and do that much faster than, than human babies can do. So we have made an enormous amount of progress over those 70 years. And this is bringing me and others to ask the following very simple question, which we probably should have asked much more insistently, much longer ago, which is, what if we actually succeed? What if we are able to create machines that act successfully in the real world, which is what we've been trying to do all along.
2: Successfully and autonomously, or successfully within the parameters that we set for it.
1: So autonomy for computers does, does not mean that they start doing things separate from what their program tells them to do. They're always going to be following what their program tells them to do. So for AI systems, autonomy means largely the capability to go beyond what the designer knew about the environment and about how to behave in that environment. For example, for a tic-tac-toe program or knots Noughts and Crosses program for our British audience, the designer can solve Noughts and Crosses in advance and just provide a table of solutions. So whenever the, the Noughts and Crosses are in this configuration, this is the right move, and, and you can either... Guarantee a, a win or at least a draw in all cases. So that would be a completely non-autonomous program because the program itself is not working out how to play the game. The designer is, has worked out how to play the game and has simply put the answer in. And we see similar things with you know self-driving cars. When a self-driving car sees a pedestrian in front of it and it's going forward, or a pedestrian behind it and it's going backwards. Uh, it stops. And that's because the designers have built in a rule that says stop if you see this situation. Um, The car itself doesn't know why it's doing it. It doesn't know that people don't like to be run over. It doesn't know that if it keeps going, it will run over the pedestrian. So it's acting for reasons that it itself has no knowledge of or understanding of. Uh, So autonomy would mean that increasingly... All of its actions are guided by knowledge that it has learned during its life, so to speak, rather than being based on what the programmer put put in at the beginning. Um, so we would like both, right? We we would like the system to be very successful at achieving all of its objectives, and we would like it to be autonomous because, for two reasons, one is that that relieves us of the enormous burden of solving every problem in the world in advance and putting in the solutions. Um, And it also means that the AI system can function successfully, even in environments that we are unfamiliar with as designers. For example, you could send a robot to explore the moons of Jupiter, um, and it might encounter materials or terrain or or other kinds of physical circumstances that we have absolutely no knowledge of. And you would want it to be able to then learn how to function, right? How to climb up slopes, uh, that are made of frozen oxygen or something like that, that we, we simply don't know how to do. Uh, and it will have to learn how to do it. And if it's autonomous, uh, then it can do that. And that's part of what we mean by intelligence. So the success Coming back to this question, what if we succeed? That would mean, what if we actually build machines that can act successfully and autonomously across pretty much the full range of circumstances, and possibly more, that a human could cope with?
2: Why do you believe that there's no need for robots in human form?
1: It's effectively a form of dishonesty. AI systems are not human beings, and for the foreseeable future and possibly, forever. Uh, they will not behave or think like human beings. Uh, even if they do become intelligent, they won't be intelligent in a very human-like way. So putting them in a human body is, a, is just a lie. Uh, and it's a lie that uses our psychological makeup, right? The fact that when something has a humanoid form, we cannot help but attribute other human characteristics to it, like understanding our point of view, all those attributions would probably be false uh, and they would be induced by the physical appearance of the device. And it's already happening with Sophia. It's a robot. It has a female human face, but it's animated in that it uh, has sort of facial muscles, if you like, and its, it's jaw can uh, articulate. Its eyes can open and close. The head can move around. I don't think the designer thinks of Sophia as the, the ultimate expression of the intelligence side of AI, but it is quite sophisticated uh, on the physical side uh, in terms of facial expressions and so on. And that is incredibly effective at, at convincing lay audiences to take it seriously. And Saudi Arabia made Sophia uh, an honorary citizen of the country, which is, I think, a pretty worrying development. If we make humanoid AI systems, and this is something that we see in fiction, for example, Ian McEwan's recent novel involves uh, an extremely humanoid robot, actually produced by a company uh, founded by Alan Turing, who didn't commit suicide, in, at least in the novel, uh, and went on yeah, to machines create, like
2: me. Yeah,
1: yeah went on good. to create human level AI. The fact that the machine is humanoid uh, creates all kinds of of problems, I think it would create psychological problems for humans because of this mismatch between what our subconscious is telling us, that this is a human being, um, and then the mismatch between that and the way the AI system uh, reacts to us, uh, it, its lack of understanding or its sort of alien uh, psychological makeup. So I think that the best thing to do actually would be to make robots that have a distinct morphological structure. So not a dog, not a horse, not a human, uh, but possibly a set, like a centaur. So something with four legs and two arms actually is much more stable than a biped and can still do all the manipulation, you know, laying the table, washing up, etc., etc., and is not confusable with categories that we're already familiar with.
2: Professor... I was watching your TED Talk and you were talking about the gorillas and human beings, of course, evolution. And then actually that that didn't work out particularly well for the gorillas, uh, the fact that we came along. I guess comparing that, can you foresee a time when students don't need to be lectured at University of California, Berkeley, in artificial intelligence by a human being?
1: Yes, actually. Uh, I think that This is one of the things we can do with AI, which could be enormously beneficial for human beings is to provide individual tutoring from, uh, you know, from an entity that's extremely competent, knowledgeable, and skilled in whatever subject uh, you want to learn. We know from experiments that when you have a human tutor with those characteristics, typically children learn about three times faster. What it takes pupils 13 years or so, 14 years to learn in school, with a personal tutor, you can learn in four or five years without breaking a sweat. And so you can, if you have individual tutoring, uh, you can bring every human being up to a much higher level of understanding in all kinds of areas. Unfortunately, the math doesn't work out there aren't enough skilled human tutors uh, to teach every single child individually. You know, there, there aren't even enough parents to do that. If, if, if parents have more than two children, you don't even have time to tutor your own children. So you just can't do it uh, from a practical or, or even an economic point of view, but with AI, not today's AI, but future AI systems that uh, that have these capabilities, you could provide that kind of individual tutoring. The thing that I think is much harder for AI systems is to know what it's like to be a human, to know what it's like to be bored or to not want to listen to calculus today because the sun's shining uh, and your friend wants to go surfing or something like that, or to know what it's like to, to hit your... Thumb with a hammer. I think that's the example I use in the book, right? So even if a human has never hit their thumb with a hammer, they have an easy way to learn what it's like. They can just take a hammer and hit their thumb. Right? For a robot, that doesn't work. The robot could take its his hand and hit, <laughs> hit it with a hammer. It wouldn't be anything like what it is for a human being. And so we have this built-in advantage in relating to each other that. Because our nervous systems and our psychological makeups are, to a first approximation, all the same, we know what it's like to be in the shoes of the other person. Uh, We effectively simulate them using ourselves uh, as the simulator. That empathic connection is absolutely fundamental to all of human interaction, and it's why Human interaction is so effective. So this ability we have, I think, is is going to be in the future, in some sense, our salvation. It's going to be the thing that gives us a competitive advantage over uh, robots in all kinds of these interpersonal uh, contact relationship services, whatever you want to call them. Um, and that in- includes tutoring. So the AI system I think will be very good at conveying knowledge, at sort of debugging, misunderstandings, at providing I- increasingly challenging exercises, etc, etc, etc. But it will probably not be any good at the motivational side. I, th- I think the educational system will end up being a composite of a, a human teacher, who can guide 10 or 20 students uh, as they're tutored by uh, AI systems and then deal with all the, the things that the AI system can't do, the motivation, you know, self-esteem. I think with that, uh, we can actually have a huge beneficial impact on the human race. The vast majority of the world right now cannot develop to a standard of living that we take for granted in western countries because they don't have the educational capacity to uh, to teach people what they need to know in order to to create and manage you know the complex structures of civilization so it could be a huge step forward i think for the whole world
2: professor Stuart russell it's been an absolute pleasure
1: thank you it's been a pleasure nihil Mathematician and philosopher Paolo Zellini takes on a journey through the world of numbers. A brief cultural and intellectual history of mathematics were presented with the paradoxes of ancient Greece, distant concepts and our own fascination with algorithms.
2: On the one hand, there are real, present things. On the other, mathematical concepts. Creations of our mind, which simulate their behaviour in a more or less effective way. Ignorance of the true reason behind the descriptive power of formulas and equations certainly doesn't help to clarify the underlying motivation behind mathematical thinking. It gives currency, instead, to the idea that mathematicians are not inclined to engage with the world.
1: The audiobook edition, The Mathematics of the Gods and the Algorithms of Men, is available to download now.